Father, thank you again for the opportunity to uh, spend time in your word. We pray that you would continue to guide and direct in our lives. We thank you again for the opportunity to, um, uh, to spend time together with each other and to spend time with you. We pray your blessing on our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, we're on uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses uh, 1 through 11. So somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. All right. All right. So uh, we've, we've talked about this uh, first three verses several times, and uh, we've spent a good portion of time on the balance of uh, this, this passage. We're down to about the, uh, the last uh, few verses uh, that we've read. I don't remember if you uh, know the uh, missionary. He died, I think, in the in the 50s, late 50s. His name was Jim Elliott. Anybody know the, the name Jim Elliott? Gates of Splendor was a book written about him and Nate Saint um, and others that, that died as a result of attempting to reach uh, a tribe that was on the Amazon that had never seen a white man. And uh, anyhow, he wrote in one of his journals, uh, Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Uh, and that's always been uh, one of those those quotes that really strikes me, you know, and it just makes me, it's like, oh, wow, I wish I could remember that. Uh, and I wish I could apply that to my life on a regular basis because there are times when I try to keep what I cannot keep and I, you know, to, and trying to gain what is just really just sand in my hand that just falls through my hands, you know, uh, versus trying to gain what is what is precious and what will last forever. So um, remember that we talked about the fact that uh, in verse eight as well, we we mentioned that 
the idea of I consider what all of those things, not, not saying that when he, the, all the things that he had, his, his resume was a great resume, but when it compared to what it took to become uh, connected back to God in truth, uh, that resume amounted to nothing. And he uh, uses a very strong term in the Greek, and although we, we call it uh, rubbish or, or garbage, uh, the King James calls it dung, and that's probably an accurate uh, definition of it. It is uh, uh, excrement that he's talking about here. And he says, compared to knowing Christ, compared to, to what you know Christ has to offer, what I gain through Christ, and to be found in him, uh, not having the righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but through faith in Christ. Isn't it interesting that, you know, we think that it's important for us that law, laws are important, aren't they? If we didn't have law, we'd have anarchy. But laws, really, one of the things that laws do is they point out to us our failures, how often I fail, you know? trying to squeak through the light because it's on amber and it goes to red and I go, yeah, I'm turning anyhow. There's no traffic here, you know. I'm going to squeal through the, the, the light. Uh, I'm going to, you know, break the speed limit just because, well, just because I can. Um, you know, that extra three or four miles per hour that, you know, that I can go that and don't have to worry about getting a ticket. Why, you know, that's okay. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know the feeling, man. I was, I went through that light up at, at uh, uh, John R. In, in South, and it was like it was getting really close to red. I was probably red when I went through it, but I was trying to get here, and at least have time to set up before we, you know. So there is a sense to which our we want knowledge, uh, and and God wants us to have knowledge of of, of Him. Uh, knowledge is important, but knowledge in and of itself, is knowledge a good thing or a bad thing? Or can it be both? It can be both. So what happens when we have knowledge without application? It creates pride. In fact, First uh, Corinthians uh, talks about that. I think it's chapter 13. It talks about, you know, that Knowledge uh, has this tendency to puff up, and if you have knowledge without knowing who God is, without really knowing God, it's one thing, you know, I'm always amazed, and, and I probably suffered from this as much as anybody else, but I can remember pastors that I knew that prior to going to seminary were amazing preachers. Coming out of <laughs> seminary were absolutely horrible as preachers. Well, why? Because they got all kinds of knowledge, but they weren't figuring out how to apply what they, they were doing a better job of, of applying for before they went to ivory towers. And I think that that's a, a, a challenge that, that everyone has on anything, any subject that we're good at, uh, especially if we were an expert at it. You know, of course, uh, George said that, you know, the more letters you have after your name, the, you know, the, the, more, the, co the more costly it is for subscriptions and other things, you know, which is true. <laughs> but there's a sense to which the more knowledge you have, the more potential it is to be puffed up by that knowledge. And um, what we need is to have knowledge that we apply. Knowledge for knowledge's sake doesn't do anything. Knowledge without actually knowing, knowing about something is, is different than knowing that person or knowing that thing. 
And in this particular case, we're talking about knowing who God is and knowing Christ and having a personal relationship with Christ. This is the tough thing. Um, we talk about, um, in terms of righteousness, um, we're clothed uh, in Christ. We're clothed in, in God's righteousness rather than our own. And, and that basis of being able to be clothed in, in God's righteousness is that we have fellowship with God because of our righteousness, because of his righteousness that he, that he imputes to us. Uh, think of this, James 15, 6 says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He believed God. He had faith in God. Belief and faith are kind of the same word. In the, one is a verb and one is a noun. Okay, in the, in the, and we, we translate it. But in the, in the Hebrew, it's often the same word. It's just how it's applied. Um, and, and how it's used in the sentence. Uh, Psalm 143 verse 12 says, In your unfailing love, silence my enemies uh, and destroy all my foes, for I am your servant. And Paul continues to talk about this in Romans 4, where he says the basic question for all persons is the question of righteousness. In Scripture, righteousness is often considered a, a legal term, not just a moral term. It means that the judge has pronounced someone righteous. Uh, the verdict does not necessarily depend on morality or upon reality. It depends upon the judge declaring that you're righteous, uh, which is uh, the term that we, one of the other terms we use for that is justification. As though God announces to us that we, it is as though we have never sinned, just as if I've never sinned is one of the easiest ways of remembering what justification, uh, how to define it just as if I've never sinned. God says, I'm putting you in a, in a relationship. I'm saying that in this, you're positionally correct, you're positionally righteous before me. Um, that's tough. I mean, that's great because it gives me a sense of where I am, but does it end there? Does it end there with just being a right standing? Well, I, you know, I love the phrase that says God loves you so much that he accepts you just the way you are, but he loves you so much more that he'll never allow you to stay that way. You know? <laughs> so, so there is a process that we go through, which, you know, is kind of what verse 10 is all about, where it talks about uh, we have faith in uh, the faith of Christ, and as a result of that, we have faith in Christ. And then he goes on to say, not only do we have that, but he talks about the fact that it's imputed to us. Uh, uh, Romans uh, 4 talks about imputation. It means to put to one's account. It's the same concept, but a Greek word that when we talked about in Genesis where it says, and God countered it as righteousness towards God, it's, a, it's a, an accounting term. It's to put in the ledger that this is where you are, this is how you are, this is who you are as a result of being with Christ. And um, he turns to uh, uh, us with the idea of a better approach. In fact, um, in verse 10 it says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, uh, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Uh, so we have this, uh, verse 10, uh, I can we can describe it as sanctification, that we, it is the process by which we get to know 
uh, Christ and we can become more and more like him. It's a process that will not end until we get to the other side, until we are taken home, until we have the fully complete body of Christ, where we are now fully like him because he has turned us into a glorified body, which is the last aspect of in verse 11, uh, the glorification. Now, uh, another thing that, again, is, is a minor, but it is kind of those things that I, every once in a while I get a kick out of finding. And there is a sense to which there is a chiasm here in verses 10 and 11. The chiasm, it has to, it relates back to the Greek uh, in order to, to catch it because you have to understand the, term, uh, the, the thought process. Remember, a chiasm is a series of statements in which the center statement is the most important. And so you have the beginning statement about the resurrection, the ending statement about the resurrection, and then you have sandwich in the middle, which is uh, B, if you will. And the B part is the sufferings, which is, uh, also equates to uh, becoming like him in his death. The idea of suffering, how did Christ suffer? How did Christ suffer? Separation, personally separation from, from God the Father, first time ever, which, you know, blows me away, and I can't understand it, even understanding what little bit I know about the Trinity. I don't know how you separate the, you know, one portion of the Trinity uh, in time when, it, you know, they're together in time, outside of time. For It just blows my mind trying to figure it out, but it, it apparently works, you know, in God's, in God's economy. Uh, but the idea of suffering comes with the idea of, of death. Christ's ultimate suffering was his death on the cross. And if we were to look in um, uh, Romans, we'd, we'd catch that, uh, that, that aspect of it. But it's this idea of uh, the fact that we, um, we have this, uh, the most important part of the resurrection is not the resurrection. It's the fact that Christ died for us. He paid the penalty. And that's what Paul is getting at, is this is the most important part. And as a result of that, it expands out to the resurrection. Without the resurrection, the death is kind of meaningless because there's no promise of what comes after. Yeah, Rick. Was the separation his perception because of the human side of Christ, but he was really never actually separated from the Father? Well, that's a good question, and, and uh, theologians will argue that until we get to heaven and figure out for sure what the truth of that is. That is a theory, yeah. I, I personally don't ascribe to that, but I'm not... Yeah, believe that? I would think so, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but I, I think my personal opinion is that Christ, when he hung on the cross, God poured out all of the sin of the world from everything from Adam to the last person that will ever live in the future including every one of my sins, past, present, and future, and all of yours, just saying. Um, and that as a result of that, there is no way that God can look on, on evil, on sin. So to pour out, to take on the sins of the world means he takes the punishment for us. And the punishment that, that God says is, is spiritual death, which is separation from God, which again is mind-boggling because I don't understand how God dies and I don't understand how the 
a person of the Trinity is separated from the Trinity for any length of time. Go ahead. Go, go, go ahead. Based on your personal observation of be having been there 2,000 years ago. <laughs> You're talking about him leading captivity captive, which is, I think, from Ephesians, is it, I believe? Yeah, and we talk about the fact that he went to, he went in and he preached to those that were in uh, in Sheol or Hades. And, and um, I think he was preaching not so much to, to try to win them as just to point, prove a point. Yeah, here's what's happening. Uh, and those that were believers, he took with him to heaven and then, Remember, it's that whole aspect that Paul uses in this aspect of when a Roman general won a war, they would go back to Rome and they would parade, they would have this huge parade in Rome for him. And one of the things that he would do is bring all the captives with him. And that was part of the, the splendor of what he had done is look at all these people I captured. Well, in this particular case, this is God, this is Christ leading captivity captive and parading them on into heaven. But they're not there as, as slaves, they're there as conquerors, as victors, because Christ won the battle. So it's a huge, it, I mean, it's a beautiful picture, but man, oh man, can you imagine? I can't imagine, I can't even believe, begin to think how many people must have been in, in Abraham's bosom, that portion of, of uh, paradise. And then I've often wondered, and this is just me being, you know, my mind, you know, which is, as you know, not always on the same link as everyone else. But there's a whole empty spot in, in Hades now, right, in, in Sheol. Yeah. I'm wondering if that got turned into the rest of, you know, not so nice anymore. Now it's, it's you know, the paradise has been turned into torment. And I'm wondering if that's what he's filling up the rest of Hades with right now. Just a thought. I don't know. But... Well, I don't know. When I get there, it'll be one of those questions. It'll be uh, probably 337,000 on the bottom. There'll be one of the questions. Hey, what about this? I was always wondering. We don't know. That's Again, that's pure speculation on my part. There's no proof. There's nothing in Scripture that suggests it. I just think about this fact that this is a lot of wasted space. You know? And real estate's always important, right? So. <laughs> Of course. And especially the things that we don't know, which are many. And even the things we know, we really don't know. If you think about it. You know, you need to put that on a sign or something. You know, everything that I know, I don't really know. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> we have our perception of it, and our perception is going to be right. It's just like, it's just like when we go to, I'm sorry? It's called faith. It is called faith. You're absolutely right. But there's a sense to which our perception is based upon all kinds of preconceived ideas and culture. And our culture is different than somebody else's culture. 
uh, from a personal standpoint and even from a, you know, whether it's, it's black and white, whether it's, it's blue collar and white collar, whether it's uh, Western or Eastern, whether it's uh, a culture that even within the culture of, uh, you know, uh, uh, United States versus Europe, uh, huge differences in there that we don't often ap appreciate until we get involved and you go, oops, you know, I'm, uh, I'm trying to learn how to be a, how to understand uh, Cubans right now because I'm headed back to Cuba, as you know, in March. And um, I've been talking with one through WhatsApp and I, I have a hard time sometimes appreciating their sense of humor. I can't tell if they're being humorous or not, you know, <laughs> and are. I'm sorry. They are. They aren't? Well, according to her, she is, but anyhow, it's the <laughs> wife of one of the pastors that she I'm... She's a stitch, right? she, she is a <laughs> stitch. She, she starts pulling my leg. <laughs> yeah, so anyhow, but... Um, th so uh, it, we have this understanding of who God is and what God is, and the fellowship of his suffering is important because, again, I've mentioned to you, on, I don't know how many times, everyone wants the power of the resurrection but none of us wants the way that it gets there. The way that we get the power of the resurrection is having the fellowship of his suffering, which means dying to self and becoming more and more like Christ, which is frankly a little hard to do, especially in our own. I know I can't do it by myself. And a powerful life only begins with conversion and then goes on after that to successively and progressively become more and more like Christ that's the goal and when that absolutely happens at the very end you become transformed like him because uh, uh, God says that there will come a time when when that happens uh, that we will be like him for we will see him as he is so knowing Christ also means identifying as I said with his death this involves the participation of suffering, which, you know, again, not a real big fan of personally, you know? It, I, I'm, I'm not into sadomasochism, just not, not, my, not my cup of tea. But yet, I have to live a life that allows for me to, be, to suffer for Christ's sake. Now, how that takes on its form is going to be different for each of us. Some of it might be mental. Some of it might be physical. Some of it might be health, job, um, persecution for righteousness' sake. Uh, we talk about being identified with Christ. Being unified with Christ in his death is a, is a, was a spiritual reality, but being conformed to his death is a daily process that, frankly, sometimes I get up in the morning and I just go, you know, I don't really know that I want to be that today. Just being honest here. Wish I wasn't, but there are times I go, man, I got to do this again. And there are times when you're in the midst of whatever it is that you're going through, and you're going, another day? How long, oh Lord, right? Do, 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 do any of you feel that way at times? Lord, okay. But Romans 6 11 says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's what we're supposed to do. And I have a hard time doing that. I'm just saying. All right. Let's see here. This idea of um, 
And so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead, there is an area of which the Jewish people believe that suffering would precede resurrection. Um, and, and I think Paul ties into this with this aspect here of 10 and 11. In addition to Romans 8, some of you remember this, that creation waits eagerly, Romans 8, 19 through 22. Creation waits eagerly with eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Think about that. I can't help but wonder if, if maybe creation is trying to be reborn, is looking forward to the opportunity of being reborn. And when it does, uh, you know, sometimes I wonder why is it that we're worried about, and I'm going to say something that's going to be politically incorrect. I'm not saying we shouldn't take care of the earth, but we, I think we worry way too much about the earth because God's going to destroy it with fire. We already know that. That's Peter talks about that. And I'm in favor of being involved because I think that we were put here to be conservationists of this world. Stewards of the earth. Yes, thank you. That's our job. And so I think there have been times when we have done a, 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 an absolutely horrible job of doing that. But at the same time, God says that he's going to judge the earth one more time. The first time was with a flood. The next time is going to be with fire. And he's going to have a new earth and a new heaven. So there's a, there's a sense to which, yeah, I need to be careful about what we do with this earth. I don't need to be as careful as some people are concerned about because I'm going, it's going to get destroyed anyhow. And all of us know that, well, Rick, what happens when we have a forest that gets on fire? What happens afterwards? It's less likely to have another fire. Less likely to have another fire? What else? New growth. And there are some things that only grow as a result of the fire happening. So there's a whole aspect of this creation that's going to change as a result of what God's going to do at some point in time. Now, I don't know what that looks like, and whatever I imagine is probably going to be wrong because James has reminded me that what I know I don't really know, so you know that's good to know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's good to have someone put you in your place, and it's really important to have those guys real close to you. So, you know, I, I, I'm thrilled about the fact that we have this opportunity to experience what his fellowship is this, of his suffering. Because if we're through that, I'm strengthened to become more like Christ and better able to do what Christ wants me to do. Now, the primary per, uh, point of this passage is the fact that righteousness before God on the final day comes solely from God. And any attempt to add requirements of human invention to what God has freely given amounts to, frankly, a rejection of the gospel. There are those that have, uh, have attempted to uh, add requirements to the gospel, uh, God's grace. And the result of that is that God, uh, Paul says that all of those things are not really gospel at all. In fact, there's a couple of passages. Let me just read for you. Uh, Galatians 6, uh, Galatians 1, verses 6 through 7. I marvel that you have turned away so soon from him who called you to the grace of Christ to a different gospel, 
which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. We've talked about Galatians in the past. Here's another one out of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians says, And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. How often have we been deceived by someone who does things that look miraculous or that are, that are, look like they're really good guys or really good people, and then we find out afterwards, not so much. Now, there are ob obviously there are uh, problems with understanding this and how we apply this. There are those that, that say that, um, the, that Paul's understanding of flesh in the Old Testament is an Old Testament understanding, and those that say that it's a New Testament understanding. In other words, the Old Testament understanding is the frailty of life. And, and there is a sense to which that's true, because the, in the New Testament, this idea of frailty of life comes about that we know that there is a frailty of life, and we also know that, that flesh, uh, the frailty of flesh or humanity, comes to that, but there's also another step of which uh, we are. Pr Paul looks at, at the frailty of our flesh and sees that because of the frailty of our flesh, we are prone to sin. Now, uh, Paul is very careful also to point out that that while he takes steps in a lot of different passages that the flesh is closely allied with what is worldly and sinful rather than what is spiritual and good. And I could read you Romans, several passages out of Romans, several passages out of Galatians. Let me just also point out that Paul also clearly does not believe that the flesh in and of itself is sinful. Sin entered the human scene after the creation of Adam and not the time of his creation. Uh, Romans uh, 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. So there is a sense to which uh, uh, there is a possibility of, of flesh being sinful. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, did not come in sinful flesh. Romans 8.3, this is one of those things that's really kind of hard to figure it out, but we take God's word for what it says. It says from Romans 8.3, it says, For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in sinful men. So Christ in and of himself was not born of sinful flesh. It sounds like a, it sounds like a great paradox, doesn't it? I don't fully understand it, but I trust that it's so because as a result of that, he was not tainted uh, by sin. In fact, uh, let me just uh, quickly jump over to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 says, if I can get there, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Christ had no sin. So <clears throat> righteousness as it stands in this passage talks about the fact that it means morally right, just, upright, virtuous, law-abiding. It means to observe the, the customs of the day. It means to be fair. It means to be deserved. And as a result of that, we get that, not because we earned it, but because we didn't earn it, but Christ did. 
and God gives us Christ's righteousness. All right, let me just jump to... You're laughing. Why are you laughing? I'm skipping a whole bunch of notes. And we don't know that we don't know, right? <laughs> I used to tell people, you know, when you see the tree of life, I always ask people, what did you gain by learning what was bad? Before that, you learned only good, right? Yeah. Yeah, the tree of knowledge. We had what well, we were innocent before that. Think about it. We were never meant to know the difference between good and bad. We were just supposed to be innocent. When you look at a baby, you're born. You're, you, you don't know sin when you're a child. I mean, when Oh, they learn. They learn very quickly. No, they, they know. It's, it's, it's yeah, it's it's, it's innate. innate. It's in. Yeah. Yeah. One of the last words I ever learned was no. That's true. If um, Adam and Eve had, had free will, and we it think was they just did, it's a matter of time for them to make a poor choice. Yeah. Well, they had to have the, at least the because opportunity even, of it. Even being good natured and all that, it's still easy to make a bad choice. Oh, yeah. yeah and they made a doozy. Think about it. God's not a creator of evil. Correct. Correct. That's what our free will is all about. Correct. We are not robots. We are not automatons. And because yeah. of that, I'm worthy of death. The other side of that is really interesting, though. God created us with a free will because he wanted us to choose yeah. him. Yeah. He wanted us to love him freely, right. not because he has a whip in a chair, but right. because we just simply love him. Isn't it interesting that God's way is so often contradictory to where the way we think it ought to be? <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> so many times we just take my advice. You know, it'd be so much easier this whole world. This world would be amazing if it would just do it my way, right? Of course, there's there's. I'm amazed at uh, the fact, we, and we've talked about this before. I, I actually wrote a paper a number of years ago 
based on the passage out of uh, Timothy where it says that all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's not an option. So the question that started to come to my mind was, what is persecution? And where does it come from? And um, because I'm thinking, well, maybe, maybe I'm not a real believer if I'm not suffering for Christ. What does that look like? How does that look? And uh, then I started reading some of the passages of Scripture and thinking about it. Job suffered greatly. Didn't necessarily do anything wrong, but he had a lot of suffering that was all physical. So physical suffering might be one of those aspects. Uh, suffering, I've, I've often pointed out the fact that suffering and persecution come from without the family and the family bands together. But when there is no persecution from the outside, there's persecution on the inside because we fight against each other. We come up with ways of, you know, well, and, and my, my mother's family was, was Polish and they were first, uh, they were uh, first generation Americans. So their, their family was all from the old country. And I'm gonna tell you what, they fought like cats and dogs. It was always crazy to go to my, my, my grandparents for, my grandmothers uh, for uh, anything that was family related. In fact, the first time my wife went, she couldn't believe just how bad it was. She was absolutely appalled that that was the way that families went on. And I go, yeah, it's just my family, it's my mother's side. They, they fight among them. And then someone attacked one of them and suddenly there's a unified front. You know, they're, they're standing shoulder to shoulder. But other than that, they're not. They're, you know, they're duking it out, you know, at least at least mentally and, and, and verbally, you know, with so-and-so uh, got something that someone else didn't get, and, you know, the mom's playing, playing favorites, and, you know, uh, the oldest had to take care of the youngest because, you know, mom had to work, and so she's upset over that. The youngest feel like they never, they never got, they always got the short end of the stick because, the oldest was, you know, after them with a broom. And I mean, I just goes on and on. By the way, my mother was the oldest. She was the one with the broom. So, <laughs> just saying. All right. So there is a sense to which our privilege and our understanding of, of uh, attainment uh, that we can attain this, this way of privilege that God gives us can be evil in and of itself. It can become pride when we start, you know, pr being proud of the suffering. Ah, you look at me, man. I must really be good for Christ, you know. And there are times when we rejoice in that, but you can go rejoice and go and, and go from rejoicing to pride in what you're going through. Um, Paul did not consider his privileges and attainments to be evil in and of themselves, nor did he believe the flesh itself was evil. In fact. Uh, evil lay in Paul's trust in the flesh instead of the gospel. So that becomes an important aspect. There's, uh, there's this aspect of uh, that um, there's nothing specifically legalistic about Judaism in general or Phariseeism in particular in the first century except that those that went beyond the pale of what it re required. Remember we've talked about how that it's so easy to say, well, first generation goes, you know, we're not supposed to do this, so let's build a fence around it to make sure we don't do it. And the next generation goes, oh, they've codified that. That fence, 
we shouldn't touch that fence either because that could be a sin. So we're going to build a fence in front of that fence. You know, and suddenly you've got a whole series of laws, rules, if you will, that are required that have nothing to do with the original law. It's all aspects that we added to it. Um, I, I remember, I, I've told you this story, but I, I you know, I, I was after I graduated from Bob Jones, I'm sitting at, a, at the dinner table one night after a, a, a service and uh, a pastor, myself, and and uh, Bob Jones III, who was at that, that time the president of Bob Jones University, uh, were talking, and uh, so we got on the subject of rules. And uh, uh, Bob Third said, um, well, you know, we know that, that this is the rule, this is, this, is, this is what God says, but we hold you to a higher standard because we know that when you leave our school, you're going to slip, and we only want you to slip down to God's standard. And I'm going, what, what, is, what could possibly be wrong with this understanding? This, this amounts to legalism and what today we call Phariseeism. You know, we, you're overextending, the, you're creating laws on top of the real law so that we don't break it. Instead of saying, this is the standard, hold to this. This is what God's word says. No, no, no. We're going to hold you up here because we know you're going to slip. That works out real well, doesn't it? It makes you real fond of your teaching, makes you question just about everything they taught you. It makes you question the person in charge. Oh, yeah. I mean, so he's going to, so you mean he's up here and then we're down here in our humble portion? It was was a a little, it's like, you know, okay, you definitely have clay feet. No, 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 no. Because at the time, I was actually interviewing for a, for a job at that church. And uh, there was no way in the world I was going to, I was going to pull that finger, you know. <laughs> there was no way I was going to, I was, I was, a, I was chicken, yes, I will admit. I was trying to be a good guy and, and not, you know, yeah. yeah. Well, no, sometimes it wasn't an answer. It just was, it was not a, I didn't ask the question. Because in, in my older, as I've gotten older, I've gotten smarter. But I used to be the guy that would just say, whoa, wait a second, in the middle of class and say, that doesn't jive with the scripture. You know, let's talk about this for a minute. You know, I was constantly getting in trouble for uh, pointing out, uh, you know, things that were wrong. But um, anyhow, what can I say? I, so... Uh, let's take a look at, with the few minutes we have left. Let's just look at some of the significance of this as it applies to today, to Western Europe and North American Christians in general. Uh, yeah, there are a couple of, of things that are problems when you are, we have a difficult time drawing boundaries, theological boundaries specifically. Let me say a couple of things. One. Many Christians have been deeply scarred emotionally by people within the church who claim to be on a crusade for truth, but who instead are on a crusade for themselves and under the guise of guarding the gospel from distortion, swayed the opinion of other people to capture positions of power, prestige, and to banish those who did not agree with them. They were on a power trip. 
it's like Diotrephes uh, in Second John. Diotrephes fought against, can you imagine fighting against the, the beloved apostle, John, the guy of love, right? And so you're the guy that's saying, you know, no, don't trust him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Diotrephes, verses 9 and 10, he thought he was so much better and so much more important that he actually was stopping people from t taking care of John and helping John and helping the ministry go forward. He stopped them. And the, the, I've had diatrophies in my church in the past. You know, they thought they were really something else, and they were, they were nothing but diatrophies. Uh, Christians that claim that the Bible and the church are the, the repositories of truth about human nature, God, human plight, and salvation have deci are decidedly unpopular today. Let's just say it again. Christians that claim the Bible and the church are the repositories of truth about human nature, about God, about human plight, and about salvation are decidedly unpopular today. There's an 18th century philosopher who said this, it is impossible to live in peace with those whom we believe to be damned. <laughs> and there is a, there's a sense to which this is a, at, at the popular level, this translates into the notion that Christians who claim to know the truth are somehow comparable to the extreme Islamic groups that are out there, and they're labeled fundamentalists. There was a time when I liked the term fundamentalist when I was growing up. I came to hate it as I got older. I, I don't like it because I don't agree with what the average fundamentalist has done. They've gone overboard, in my opinion. Sorry, guys. hate to tell you this, if those of you listening to my podcast. But I consider myself an evangelical with fundamentalist leanings but not the term fundamentalist as it has been used today. There are too many are willing to accept this label since it's been stretched to, to, to mean ignorance and rigidity and paranoia and violence, and I, and I don't agree with that. Uh, the result of this is that Christians today are often unwilling to identify heresy as heresy because they're afraid of what they're going to be termed. Oh, you're a fundamentalist. You're, you're one of those. And so the result is that we, we rarely uh, identify heresy as heresy. We rarely, Christian denominations rarely discipline ministers on theological grounds. Pastors sometimes feed their congregations of self-help sermons and avoid potentially divisive doctrinal issues because they're afraid of losing members. Uh, and many church members would be hard-pressed to explain the meaning of the Apostles' Creed or any of the other creeds that are out there, or statements or positions that are out there. Taking a stand on theological matters is simply just too risky for many churches today. And it's the subject of abuse when it's been used by power-hungry people who identify with intolerance and ignorance as far as the wider culture is concerned. Now, is there an element of truth in this position? Sure. Has the church been done wrong in the past? Yeah. The Inquisition, the Dominicans, the Franciscans, they patrolled Italy, they patrolled Spain, they, they delivered people to prison, they subject them to persecution, but you know what? We did it here in America too. 
You're not doing it. The, the, the colonies were set up. They were not. Plymouth Colony was set up as a religious organization, but it did not tolerate those that disagreed with themselves. You know what they did? They kicked them out. You know where they went? To Rhode Island. Rhode Island was founded by, by people that believed in religious freedom of expression that disagreed with the Puritans. Just so happens that the guy that did it was a Baptist, but I'm just saying. <laughs> now, drawing theological boundaries can be really risky. And it's, it's easy to get derailed by wrong motives, by unethical methods, uh, but refusing to draw boundaries can be equally different and difficult and risky for the church. You know, the church has, has done, I'll give an example, in the second century, there was a, uh, a guy that, that took over, even into the third century, the Orthodox Church was nearly overwhelmed by the teaching of a guy by the name of Marshan. The Martianite churches uh, dotted throughout the landscape of a lot of places, the Middle East, Egypt, Italy, all in the second century. Uh, much of the teachings of these churches were unobjectionable. They, they were right on target. They, they preached vigorous sermons from Paul's letters. Uh, they expressed intense devotion to Jesus. The format of their service was very similar to, to the format of Orthodox churches. Uh, they were a highly disciplined group, and they rejected the indulgences of the flesh. Uh, they endured martyrdom as violently as any Orthodox Christian could itself. But the leaders in Rome recognized that his position was wrong in some major areas of doctrine. And so as a result of that, they decided to fight the doctrine and fight the, the, um, the, uh, his, the spread of his particular understanding of the gospel. It became almost impossible to talk a huge sum of money for the church to do this. Nearly, nevertheless, the leaders of the Roman church excommunicated him in the middle of the second century, and they mounted a vigorous campaign that's a good thing they did because without him, if, if he had prevailed, our gospel would, would not be the gospel it is today. In fact, he believed that there were, uh, that the God of the Old Testament is the God that created the world, and he's an evil, wicked God. And it was a God of the New Testament who was a good God, and uh, that we should practice and believe the God of the New Testament. In fact, what he did is he took 10 of, the, of Paul's 13 epistles and said okay these are these are gospel the rest aren't he took luke as the guy as his as his gospel and edited it rather highly so that it conformed to his understanding and the result of that is we had a church that didn't believe in the true gospel and the faith that was once delivered to the saints as jude 3 says was almost shipwrecked as a result of that and it was the church in rome that stood firm and said no we are not going to do this. We're going to stay true to the word of God. And so uh, it, it reminds me in the third century, uh, Athanasius was, uh, uh, was one of the few that fought against uh, Arianism uh, uh, of, the, of the fourth century, 312, 315 AD, the Council of Nicaea, which they finally said Arianism was wrong. Arianism believed that uh, that God the Son was not co-equal with God the Father. 
So, it was, so through the centuries, there have been church, there have been, exactly, exactly, yeah. Um, you know, there were churches that, that uh, uh, stood against, um, there, there were people that stood against the church in, a, in trying to reform the church. You know, Luther never wanted to start his own congregation. It wasn't his idea to start a denomination. He looked for refor reformation within the church. The confessing church in, in the, uh, the Third Reich during, in Germany, uh, they stood against uh, so-called German Christians for the right to be independent of the control by the Fuhrer. Uh, some of the churches that are in communist countries are, you know, underground today because they, they stand in a, in a, uh, against uh, what the communists have attempted to uh, make them do, especially the churches in, in China have gone through that. Uh, it's, it's tough when we deal with those things, but those things are what God calls us to do. And, um, and the result is that when we do it, God says, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, there are other aspects that, that and this is where it's hard to draw the line. There are some things that different groups believe that don't mean that they're not believers. Those two particular areas that we talked about, those that believe there's a good God and a bad God, that's definitely against the scripture. There are those that believe that, uh, that uh, Christ is less than God the Father, that's definitely against scripture. And we say that those are you know, true heresies. Um, there are those of us that uh, have different views on different forms. What is communion? Does that mean we can't have fellowship with someone who doesn't agree with us on communion? No. No, it doesn't. Does it mean that we can't believe that we can't have fellowship with those that that don't practice baptism the way that we do, or that don't understand what baptism means the way that that we do? No, that doesn't mean that. It's okay. We you know, we might not agree to to participate in something that we disagree with them on a, from a particular aspect. That doesn't mean that we have to separate from them. Doesn't mean that we can't have fellowship with them. Doesn't mean we can't break bread. And, at a dinner table and talk and, 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 and have a good time and fellowship and have iron sharpen iron. It doesn't mean that at all. But it is important that we understand that there's a difference between theological heresy and those areas that are, that we don't fully know what scripture means by that. And sometimes we have, you know, do you, how, what mode of baptism do you use? What's correct? Well, I happen to think my way is right, but there are others that don't. Well, you know, and I've told you the fact that there are those that dunk, and some of the dunk, they dunk backwards, and some that dunk, they dunk forwards. And there's one group that dunks forward three times. In the name of the Father, dunk. In the name of the Son, dunk. In the name of the Holy Spirit, dunk. Is that right or wrong? Eh, it's just the way they do it. Scripture doesn't tell us how to do it. It says to do it. Now, I think that my way of understanding is better than somebody else's way, but I can appreciate that sometimes they have a difference of opinion. Will I not fellowship with them? No, I'll fellowship with them, but I probably wouldn't participate in their baptismal service. I've done the same thing with communion. There are times when they, I've been in churches where I've said, you know, I can't, I can't agree with what they're saying. I've been in an Anglican church. I've, I, when I was doing my doctoral work, I was, I, I was attending an Anglican church, and there were times when, uh, depending on who the person that was doing the process, the, the communion service, they would explain communion, and I'm going, yeah, I can't agree with that. So I wouldn't go up. 
And there are other times when I go, yeah, I'm right on board with what you're saying, brother. I'm up there with you. You know, well, why? Because I didn't agree with it, so I didn't participate. But it didn't mean I didn't have fellowship with him. It didn't mean I didn't talk to him. It didn't mean I, you know, we didn't uh, occasionally go to lunch or whatever like that. It's just the way we understood things. So make sure that when you decide that you're going to um, spend time, know what, know what Scripture says. A good thing would be to look at some of the catechisms that are out there. Read what the Apostles' Creed is. Read what the Nicene Creed is. Read the Heidelberg Catechism. Read the Westminster uh, Confession. Uh, there's a London Confession. There's also a New Hampshire Confession. There are several out there that, that would help if you read them. They might not be fully in agreement with where you are, but if you read them, you get a sense of what your brothers and sisters believe. And what is what is, you know, you'll find that there is a lot of it that you will agree with, the vast majority of it. So I, I recommend that in the future, you, you know, if you have time, find one of those and read, and you'll have to make sure you don't fall asleep in parts of it. I understand. I understand. So here's the thing. <clears throat> the leadership of the church today needs to adopt programs and strategies that although the intent is to the propagation of the gospel, they need to make sure that they're not fundamentally flawed with the world's perspective. Marketing in and of itself is a great thing. I have a, I have a, a bachelor's degree in, in business administration and specifically an area of marketing. But marketing in the church can be a positive and can be an absolute negative. There are things about, that, yes, we have to do things in our church that are business-like because it's important that we hold ourselves to a standard of, of excellence in all things. But we can't, we're not a, we're not a business, we're a church. And sometimes the, the way that we do things need, can't be like the business. It has to be like a church. There are times when we look and we go, we might not have the budget for this, but we're going to trust God because this is what we should do. And we believe God's going to bring in those funds as, as necessary. That's different than saying, well, we've got to have a marketing campaign and we've got to bring in the money. Now, that doesn't mean it's wrong if it's done biblically. But you have to be careful. You know, the, the, the biggest problem with, with marketing is that you're selling a product. Are you selling something that's worthwhile having? You know? And how are you marketing it? You know, when you go to a car show, you see a pretty car and you usually see a lot of pretty ladies. Mm -hmm. Why? Because pretty ladies make men want to buy pretty cars. Mm -hmm. you know? So we need to be careful how we market ourselves as a church. I just say market yourselves as individuals and in your businesses. All right. Any thoughts or comments? I've gone way too long. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll get you out of here. We'll... Father, thank you again for the opportunity to study your word. Thank you for the way that uh, your word encourages us and challenges us. Help us to apply this passage to not only our individual lives, but to our corporate lives as a church. Thank you, Father, for loving us and for caring for us and for loving us so much that you will accept us for who we are, but you will also move us forward to become more and more like your son. We look forward to that day when we are fully glorified and we have a glorified body and can be with him and you in eternity. Until that time, Father, keep us uh, with our eyes focused on you and our steps going in your direction. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.